Profane Faith fam, this week we are having a special episode dealing with the whole R. Kelly issue. Yeah. As you know, R. Kelly is much bigger than just R. Kelly. And the issue of sexual abuse, misogyny, sexism, rape, incest, and even sex crimes are an issue that does not get much airtime at all. We here at Profane Faith want to engage and continue these here conversations. We feel it is necessary for both healing and awareness. That being said, I wanted to give you a heads up that the material to be discussed deals with explicit areas surrounding sexual abuse. Please be advised and use caution as needed. This shit needs to end, but we have a long way to go. Traumatic experiences and victimization can create thoughts, feelings, and experiences that are different person to person. The impact and intensity can be based on upbringing, point of view, past experiences, ability to cope, the meaning behind the event, the severity of the experience or experiences, and more. So with that, let's move on faithfully and forward, y'all. Okay? Peace, fam. Let's get into this. He said, in there shall be signs of the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations. I think she's a liar, and I think she deserves mockery. It was something about when I put this hat on, it made me feel like Superman. Black lives are very important, white lives are very important, and to me, all lives are very important. Very, very important. Damn! This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hey fam, this is your boy, Dan White Hodge, here at Profane Faith. Welcome to uh, part two of the Profane Faith series on R. Kelly and sexual abuse. If you haven't had a chance to go and check out part one, uh, the first part of this series with uh, April Rain, you got to do that. Um, if you're just joining us, we are having a three-part series on the docuseries that came out uh, with Lifetime um, about a month ago now, and I felt it was important to have a deeper conversation about what it meant for R. Kelly to, you know, basically still be out, at least at the t- time of recording of this uh, podcast. And what's, what is the, the broader meaning for the church, for those who consider themselves believers in faith and God, um, and how those things are rarely talked about? So again, uh, it's a three-part series. This is part two. Um, I'll introduce my guest this week here in a minute. But if you haven't, again, if you haven't heard April Rain, uh, that conversation that her and I had is amazing. And uh, the ongoing hashtag of Surviving R. Kelly uh, has some amazing and interesting conversations in regards to believability, particularly believability of African-American women, uh, believability that uh, this had, has even happened, that people are lying on R. Kelly. Um, I think this goes deeper uh, than just R. Kelly. Uh, as I said last week, R. Kelly is bigger than just R. Kelly. Um, it This is an issue of how we look at women in, in in general, that's the first layer. I think how men in particularly see women or those who identify as men uh, see women. Um, and then, you know, when you add on the intersections of race and gender and socioeconomics, now you have a whole nother layer of mess that's there 
that quite frankly is even worse. So if you can imagine anything that is any conversation that we're going to have in regards to feminism, we're usually always talking about white feminism. But if we add in black women, it gets turned around in it's it, it just it's it's almost like unbelievable how much it gets turned around. Right. Um, I always say any conversation that we're having on race um, minus about 60, 70 years. And that's probably just the tip of the iceberg of where most people are at. Um uh, talking and, and wanting to talk about gender. Um, it's such a complex thing about how we, particularly how young boys are raised. My daughter this week, um, we were having a conversation. She was telling me about how uh, this little boy at her school, uh, you know, was being nice today. And I was like, oh, really? You know, tell me more about that. And she's, you know, she's telling me about how he was, you know, being nice this day. I said, well, has he been mean before? She's like, well, you know, he's just been like, you know, just nasty. And I was like, Oh, well, what do you mean by that? She's like, he had been coming up to her and telling her about how, you know, his thing is smelling pussy and panties, pussy and panties. Y'all, this is a 12 year old kid, little boy. Okay. 12 years old. Okay. And his mentality at this point is to walk up to young ladies and to tell him he's been smelling pussy and panties. That's his thing. So, I mean, it gets me as a father. It gets me. It's different raising a young uh, a young lady in in this day and age, uh, especially when you add in the complexities of um, social media online uh, stuff. I mean, and it wasn't like the stuff wasn't present when I went to high school. We just didn't have Twitter. We just didn't have phones that took high res pictures of people's penises and private parts. Right. Um, those things were still there. People would still record sex acts. I mean, you know, porn was still around when I was in high school. It's just that a lot of these things are, are brought to the front. And then when you go to have a conversation around, hey, you know, I think my daughter was, you know, sexually assaulted. It's like, oh, oh, oh wait, 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 are you sure? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it is just a conversation, particularly most schools just don't want to have. And if you do, you are then up for being accused that your daughter is lying, that she is uh, she made it up. She uh, maybe just didn't. You know, she's she just wants attention, you know, and, you know, or worse, they'll start blaming her. Like, well, you know, it's like she 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 brought this on, you know, and, oh, you know, boys will be boys. These are just what boys do. And I find that just to be bullshit. It's complete bullshit. It is complete it's a complete idiocy that we have boys that are being socialized. And this is not just him. It's not just this little knucklehead that's running around. I've told y'all before that my daughter has run into, you know, other boys who want to slap her ass or, you know, I mean, just, you know, crude things. And here's the thing, you know, and in, in true transparency, I know I was raised that way. I know that when I was in fifth and sixth grade, you know, my hormones were out of control. And so my idea of manhood at that time was to engage with women in a very sexually explicit manner like that. Um, and there's, you know, there's and that's what and that's part of what hits home even for me. Right. I mean, because. I was a 12, 13 year old um, exposed to sex too early. And I was a kid that looked upon women for a long time um, as, as just that. I mean, that's the way I was taught by my elders. The men in my life told me to fuck a woman good. And if you do good, she'll go tell her friends and you can fuck them too. Okay. 
So that was that was the conversations that a lot of friends of mine were brought up on. And, you know, they, you know, we, uh, practice chicks, uh, all those conversations, right, about, you know, oh, she's a cock tease, man. You know, she don't she'll never give it up, man. Or, you know, she she's trying to wait for that. I mean, all those conversations, right? Those are the things that, that, that go on. So I'm trying to say, man, how do we how do we break this, y'all? Fam, how, seriously, man, how do how do how does how does this get undone? You know, um, I'm thankful that there are so many women, you know, in in politics right now that are entering. I'm just wondering, like, you know, <laughs> it's amazing to me just to see how much particularly men come out of the woodworks trying to tell them how to act, how to be, how to how to uh, engage. And women just have to have another layer um, similar to what I as a black man have to have, but it, it's another layer that I don't have no idea about because I'm a man and there is relative privilege that exists with being a, a man. Even though I'm a black man, I do still have relative privilege that goes um, along with that. So I do believe that I, well, I know that I don't get to see all of what all of what women have to go to through in, a, in you know, in, a, in just a single day from from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you you go to bed, uh, more than likely you will have experienced some type of sexual harassment. Um, and that's just something I don't have to think about. I don't have to have to engage with, you know. Um, and so these are these are issues. Again, these are not just out there. These are not just people who are um, celebrities and people that we hold up high and esteem as our our you know our heroes or whatever. These are people right in our church. These are people sitting right in the pews with us. No matter what denomination and really no matter what kind of religion as well, uh, for that matter. Um, the way a lot of us have been raised as men, particularly here in the West, has has been has been really has been skewed towards hypermasculinity, towards toxicity, towards understanding women solely as objects. Um, you know, it's as simple as like, you know, when you get married or when you're with somebody, who 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 brings up the the conversation about birth control? And who does that normally fall on? Because as a man, really all I know about is is condoms, right? And if if this if if the woman is then like, well, hey, you know what? Because I remember, I mean, when I first got married, you know, my wife is like, I don't really want to take the pill. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, well, shoot, that's just the, I just assumed that that was just what, you know, women did. I mean, the amount of contraceptives that exist for women versus men, just starting there, that's, that's crazy. Um, The, the amount of conversations that get had. Right. And I remember my own mentors were telling me like, oh, dude, you know, you don't want to be having no sex with no, um, no condom, man. You know, that's shoot. You a man, you know, now you married, you ain't got to worry about none of that. And <laughs> you see what I'm saying? You see how those things get broken down. Even it's in, it's, it's as nefarious and insidious as children's Bibles. Children's Bibles tend to depict women as property and is nothing more than, you know, and it it's interesting to me just, again, the socialization of and the construct of gender. I mean, it is there. It is alive and well. And the reality of it is, and when you think about it, you know, most senior pastors are men. And even when you think of senior pastor, it connotes a, a male, a male intonation, 
about what a pastor should be or what about who a pastor should be. You know, the amount of shit that women, senior pastor women, women have to deal with and engage with. I mean, it's it it's crazy. It's crazy. So I'm telling you, R. Kelly is bigger than R. Kelly. And, you know, from birth control conversations and, you know, and, and consequently, my wife and I, you know, you know, she she came with it. She was just like, look, I, we want I want to use natural family planning. It's what Catholics have done for for years. But in particular, in fact, she had learned a lot of this stuff from another Catholic woman. Um, and it took me a while, y'all. I ain't going front. I mean, it, it took me a while to figure out. Man, am I going to do this? Because I was always told natural family planning was like the rhythm method, you know. And again, my mentors and people, the men in my life were like, dude, you don't want to do that. That's crap. You you want sex when you want it, not not on a schedule. And natural family planning isn't about no damn schedule. It just simply tells you, look, here's your time when you're fertile. Here's time when you're not. You take the decision. If you want to have sex during that time, have it. Just know that if you do it unprotectedly, you could run the risk of having a kid if that's what you want. But if you don't want it, just know. <laughs> Um, and once I started to understand that concept, but the fact that I had to be told, and again, I'm somebody who was raised by two women. I considered myself somebody who was knowledgeable in women and I treated women right. Never put my hands on them. I never called them out. They name y'all the, and telling you it's insidious. Oh man. Um, so as we think about this, um, when we think about, again, the intersections of women, um, Carrie Day writes an amazing book uh, on black women, and she talks about, it's called Unfinished B Business, and um, uh, black women, the black church, and the struggle to thrive in America. She writes about how the contradictions associated with American cultural representations of poverty amaze me. While the white people of Appalachia are described as a heroic and forgotten group that suffers from oppressive structures, Black poverty is off is popularly equated with laziness and criminality. Within the media, black poverty is frequently framed as singularity due to the moral culpability of blacks themselves. Within American culture, media images tend to depict poor blacks not as a forgotten group, but as a group that has forgotten the importance of hard work, discipline, and morality. Now sit on that for a minute. Because these these images are the same ones that go into jurors' minds. These are the same images that go into principals' minds. These are the same images that go into senior pastors' minds. So when that case comes before them about sexual harassment, then it's just like, mm, I don't know. You may, I don't know. This is immorality stuff here. And it's in there. My grandma always said, if it's in you, it's going to come out in the wash somewhere. <laughs> right? I always tell my students in communication class, you cannot not communicate. You cannot not communicate. Carrie Day goes on to say, poor black women by far are not irresponsible. The black women now vilified by the media were part of the rural community in which I grew up in and were in no way irresponsible. They braided my hair, sang in the choir with me and taught me how to be industrious and self-sufficient. Simply put, poor black women are often used as signifiers for poverty that is self-caused and self-generated in America. I wondered when 2020 might do a program on poor blacks, such as black women. And when you add that in, the women that are Kelly sexually uh, harassed and sexually assaulted, most of them came from impoverished conditions. Most of them came with, if, you, if you've seen the docuseries, most of them came with a sense of wanting to be big. This is my big break. 
And how often does that again take R. Kelly out the picture? How often do 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 we say, particularly POCs, right? How often do we say, "Oh man, I got to go through this just so that I can get to the next thing," right? This is what I got to do, right? I know I did that with adjuncting for ten years. I was like, "Well, I just got to do this until I get my next, you know, till I get the full time." And oftentimes in the church, right? It's like, well, I, I just, I got to do this. I got to endure this shit, this sexual harassment, because, you know, it's not like people just come right out. You, you know, penis hanging out and everything, balls out and everything. It's like, you see that. I always tell people like, look, the devil don't just come right out with horns and everything. We saw the devil for what devil is. We'd run the other way. Shit. You know, <laughs> I, I, who wants to hang out with no demons? Nobody wants to hang out with no demons. Shit. So. It's it's the subtleties. It's the nuances. It's the looks. It's the eye rolls. It's the oh, wow, you look so pretty today. Smile. Why don't you? It's the wow, you are so beautiful. I oh, I know I'm married, but I, you are so beautiful. Oh, my God. It's all of those things. It's all of those things and more. I'm sure you women, you who you are listening right now can all, all tell me stories about the other subtle nuances. So we've got some problems, some big problems around gender um, and sexual orientation. So I figured, you know, we um, we need to uh, we need to engage this. Carrie Day goes on to tell and to talk about in this book, uh, you know, about the believability factor of black women, um, which is exactly uh, where we're at, you know, with this docuseries and exactly where we're at in the United States with black women. You know, and how we look at them and how we look at black women, particularly as sex objects. Uh, they're exoticized. I know I see this on Christian campuses. I've been in Christian higher ed for, you know, almost two decades. Black women, black men are, are fetishized as well, but but differently. They have much more power in that in that situation, whereas black women are usually subject to sexual harassment and sexual abuse. They are not they are on the receiving end. They are not the the ones in power. Right. The big butt, the hair, the lips. Oh, my gosh, your hair. Oh, you look so good. I mean, just all those things, all those little things. And if it's not fetishized, then it's put off to the side and, and said it's nasty. It's disgusting. We don't want to deal with it. So I had to bring on um, a guest that really needs no introduction, although I'll introduce her. She's been on the show before. Esperanza Jean. Um, she is a Detroit native of, pr of proud Latina and African-American descent. She lives in the intersection of art, activism and academia and pastoral ministry. She received a B.A. in theology and a B.A. in English professional writing from Oakwood University. And she's currently completing two degrees at Fuller Theological Seminary, an M.A. in theology and an M.A. in intercultural studies. Uh, for work, Esperanza is the project assistant for the multicultural youth ministry at Fuller Youth Institute. There she creates research-informed practical resources for African-American and Latino congregations. In all things, she is deeply guided by practical theology that responds to social problems. I felt it was important to bring her back on. Uh, her and I were having some conversations online and Twitter. I was like, okay, we got to have this conversation in regards to R. Kelly and what what that means and what that means for you and what it means for you going into ministry. Because women have to deal with, again, all kind of just tumultuous hills in order just to even have a seat at the table. You know, the old bullshit lie that men are like, oh, I'll never go any place, you know, alone with a woman. I have to have my wife with me. That's a seclusionary and actually oppressive manner way of looking at things. Like, really, you're that weak? Right. You know, and, and why put the onus back on women? Deal with your own shit, bruh. Straight up. <laughs> Stuff's insidious, y'all. Insidious. So I figured, 
let me get Esperanza. Let's talk about this stuff and let's continue this conversation. Um, um, man, so much, so much. But I will uh, continue this conversation uh, in part three. But this week, again, Esperanza, if you haven't had a chance to go back and listen to part one, uh, I highly recommend that. Uh, White Hodge podcast uh, in the show notes. I have all kind of resources there, links to the docuseries, uh, links to resources for help, because um, I'm sure there's somebody out there right now who's being abused. Um, and there are, there are resources, um, particularly the psychological ones. So without any further ado, y'all, here's Esperanza and I talking about the R. Kelly issue and just the broader conversation of sexual abuse. Check it out. You started hearing about R. Kelly. What was, what was your engagement with that or him? Man, it's so, it's so hard to pinpoint uh, when exactly I was introduced to R. Kelly. Um, and I, and I think that speaks to his discography. Like, I think that mm -hmm. speaks to his work <laughs> and also when I was born, cause I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an early 90s baby. Okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on with it. I haven't hit 30 yet, so he's he been making music longer than I've been. <laughs> I've have mercy. But, um, yeah, I mean, he he's, there's kind of this, this category of Black um, artists, of Black musicians and singers who they're so inspirational and they're so classic in so many ways that they're just constantly circulating in, in black culture. So you can't, so I can't even pinpoint exact, exactly when I was introduced to, to R. Kelly, because he's just one of those artists that was just always on our radio. Mm -hmm. It was always at somebody's wedding, at somebody's graduation, at church, you know, yeah. his music was just everywhere. And then even when I was, you know, just kicking it with peers, dancing around and everything, he had music for us too. So it, I mean, he, he's in the water. He's in the air. Woo. My <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I mean, when I first ran into L R Kelly, I mean, it was, mm -hmm. well, this was back in my producing days. This, this mm -hmm. was, this was the early nineties. This was, this was like 92, 93. And he was just okay. still an, an up and coming R and B singer. I mean, I'll be honest. I, if I'm brutally honest, I've never been a fan of his just from a musical standpoint. Like I thought mm -hmm. his stuff was like the it was cool and obviously he had talent and everything, but I just never got into it. What brought my attention to him was the whole Aaliyah thing. That that was what oh, got me. Okay. Cause a booking agent, a friend of mine, was just like, cause you know, I I fell for the media's image of her, right? I thought she right. was 19, 20 years old. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Almost older, like, oh my goodness. Right. And then my manager, my booking friend was just like, nah, dude, she's she's underage. Nah, wait. I was like, what? What? Wait, what? So yeah. I that was my first introduction. Yeah. But I mean, I'd be curious. I mean, how, I mean, just even with that, Aaliyah mm -hmm. and his understand, you know, his wanting to be with young girls. And, and now after, obviously, we're, for those of you listening, we're talking about the series um, that just came out. And I'll put links to that uh, in the show notes. But as you were watching that, what uh, what came up for you as you were, you know, re-looking through that that time period for you? Particularly? Man, it, ooh, it, was, it was so hard. It was so hard processing that because... Um, again, being an early nineties baby, I didn't hear about the things going on with R. Kelly and Aaliyah until like early two thousands, you know, okay. so okay. decades later is when I actually 
um, really was even old enough to hear the whispers of like, oh, Aaliyah and R. Kelly. And honestly, they were just whispers. It was just like something about, oh yeah, Aaliyah and R. Kelly back in the day somewhere. It was like vague information. Um, it was always spoken yeah. about as if it was a relate a consensual, you know, adult relationship. Yeah. It was never really there was some hints of like implied something wasn't quite right, but it wasn't clear. It was just kind of like, oh yeah, back in the day, Aaliyah and R. Kelly. And I'm like, what? Because by the time I really knew about Aaliyah, she was good and grown and she was single. Like she wasn't really visibly with anybody, yeah. you know, yeah. in terms of in the public eye. Um so it was so hard watching that because I was like, have mercy, God. Like, she met this dude when she was 12? Right. 12, 12. years old. Like, what universe? You know, just, and, and that's just one tiny fraction of all the mind-blowing, horrific things that this docuseries, you know, um, unveils, you know, necessarily so, you know? Yeah. Um, and then R. Kelly being, like I said, him being kind of in the musical water for me in so many different spaces to find out that this person who, you know, grew up watching Space Jam, I believe I can fly all these different songs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the party songs like, you know, Ignition, Remix Ignition and all these different things. And they talk about it in the docuseries, just that conflict of music you love and realizing that the person that created music you love is a monster. Mm. You know, and what I mean, so let's just hop right in. I mean, what 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 is it about entertainers? I mean, uh, that that takes us so long to kind of get like, nah, 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 I don't know about no R. Kelly. I mean, Dave Chappelle makes I mean, what but what do you think that is? You know, I, I was really thinking about this because I mean, well, first, before I jump into my thought that is uniquely to the black community. Yes. I, I just want to give a disclaimer um, that I felt the need to share on Facebook as well, that. The black community is not uniquely defective. Yeah, right, okay? right, right. The black community is not by any means the only community that's protecting predators, that, you know, is sacrificing um, oppressed people for heroes that they love. This is a worldwide, culture-wide issue. Yeah. And I, I need to say that for our Black listeners, because a lot of people, there's a good number of people that I've seen in the Black community kind of shifting into this um, counterproductive space of like, see, this is why black people can't get anywhere because we're, we're, you know, black community's trash. We right. suck. Yes. Look at us. And that's inaccurate. That's actually our oppressor's language. And so Ooh. what I'm about to say is not in any means substantiating that negativity. Um, this is just, I want to speak to the nuance of each culture has different reasons why we do the dysfunction we do. And so I want to speak to the uniqueness of our why, but the what is common. So let's just be clear. Um, when it comes to us, I think as Black people in America, we have a, especially African Americans, have a unique struggle of being torn away mm. from our land, from our world, from our culture, and having to create something new. And I think because of the uniqueness of our personal difficulties when it comes to belonging, when it comes to space, when it comes to having a nation, having a country, we idolize our faiths and we idolize our art on a whole nother level, in my opinion, than other cultures, because that is our world. Like what we create, how we worship and 
how we um, create it, what we create and what we put out into the world. Like that is our nation. Yeah. Yeah. That is our country. Mm. Like this is it. You know, that that's why there's so many hardcore battles about, you know, what it is to be black yeah. and what cultural artistic things can you qualify within the realm of blackness? Because literally we don't actually have a country. <laughs> Like mm. we were kidnapped and brought here and we just making it work. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. So I, I think that's a unique nuance for us. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to let go of people like R. Kelly, why it's so hard to let go of people like Bill Cosby, why it's so hard to let go of these prolific creators that yes. we love so much because not only that that I mentioned, but also the additional layer of we also run to our art and to our faith to cope. Mm, yes. We, we run to it to deal, you know, whether it's celebrations or whether it's just, you know, escaping in, in a TV show, whatever it is, we run to that to deal. And so there's a there's a deep level of emotional bond to what these artists create and that's not easy to let go period it's just not wow i mean it's well so this is interesting this brings me up of a quote that uh brother tupac said obviously years ago that you know as black people what we like we don't have the legacy of oh you know your father he did this or your mom he did that and it's like all we have is like you just said faith art <laughs> right. And some yeah. of the icons that have that have come up just yeah. within the last really 70 years, um, yeah. that, that, as we think about popular culture. So, man, the idolization of that, I think that's. Yeah, I, yeah that's that's um, that's pretty big. I mean, yeah. what do you think keeps I mean, I, I, I'd love to hear your opinion. What keeps us in, in I'm talking now specifically about the black community? What keeps us from really believing women, particularly our women. Like, you, know, you think Bill Cosby, it takes, <laughs> it took 40 plus, but come on. I know, I I know, I know, I know you got something on this one. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, there's so many things. The, the first thing that comes to my mind is that power is a hell of a drug. <laughs> yeah. And, and power is so tempting to people who feel powerless in all other arenas. Mm. And I think we need to acknowledge that temptation. We need, when it comes, and I say we, I say as a black community, you know, pushing for racial justice, we, we need to acknowledge that the world, America isn't going to magically become a better place just because everybody who's oppressed suddenly becomes in charge. Mm. That's mm. that's not going to magically fix it. Like we're we're not inherently morally better. Mm. Everyone, everyone is subject to the temptation of I have power now. Hmm, let me see how far I can go with this. How far I can abuse this and use this. It is a personal, intentional, conscious choice to not give into that. Mm-hmm. And so bringing that to the you know, intersection of sexism and racism when it comes to black men, black men, I really need more black men to acknowledge that you have male privilege. I really, I really need that to be a thing. Mm. That's one of the main factors as to why black women aren't believed because you have male privilege. 
you um, you uh, benefit from patriarchy that is held up by white men and you are complicit with that system, which says that black women are at the bottom of the hierarchy. We're worthless, we're nothing. And says that whatever a man says about a woman is believable, but whatever a woman says about a man, mm, you need a double, trickle, triple, quadruple check. You know, um, it's, it's a power play, it's a power play. And, and also men being socialized, um, specifically talking about black men being socialized to be served by women. You know, mm. women objectified. Women being objectified is not only an issue in sex, yeah. it's an issue in life because you objectify your sisters, your mothers, your aunts, your cousins. It doesn't have to be a sexual relationship for women to be objectified because if you see us as objects to serve you, wow, then the damage has already been done. Yeah. And, and that's where just women not being believed comes into play where I think black men can get very selfish and that because of the struggles that you do experience um, that are very valid and very real that black women acknowledge all the time, we march for you, we organize for you, we lay our lives on the line for you. There is, there is no universe where black women are not acknowledging the struggle of black men, but there are many, many worlds where in terms of, you know, social spaces where men are not acknowledging the abuse of black women. Wow. Yes. Yes. That, I mean, and I think that when you compound it into that, I mean, that's, this is deep. I mean, you talked about uh, male privilege, black male privilege. Mm -hmm. I actually have a, a colleague of mine who's, who's working on that. He'll actually be happy that you, uh, that you, that you mentioned that because he's been yeah. getting a lot of pushback, particularly from black folks saying that, no, black male privilege don't exist. We, they black oh. man, they don't have no privilege, you know, like no, none whatsoever. Um, what is that? What, how does that play out then in, in our community speaking specifically about, you know, black men? Is it, I mean, is it the narrative that says, oh, I'm forgetting her name. She's she's a black womanist and feminist. I'm forgetting her name. But she talks about how in the black community, we still focus on black men and how, you know, incarceration rates. And even though these are big yeah. things, we still focus on that, but really never overlook gender and sexuality yeah. um, and, and sexual orientation. I mean, how how do you how do you engage in that? And then particularly, how do you engage that in your in your day to day? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, and I just realized I didn't finish my last train of thought. But oh, it, yeah, it, sorry. It, Go it, finish, it, please. No, you didn't cut me off. I it just trailed off. But you, your question brought it back to me in terms of the selfishness. This is a way that it shows up. The selfishness of black men and being so resentful and hurt and angry about what um, about what you're going through in so many other circles. It's 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 this interesting dynamic of. I've gone through hell all day. I've been through it in all these white spaces, dealing with all these other non-Black people because anti-Blackness is not just <laughs> in white people. That's why POC solidarity is complicated. Um, one of the reasons why. And then I come home to my, my Black community and my Black women, and it's, it's this selfishness of my pain is more important than yours. Yes. Uh, okay. I've, been, I've been through so much that I choose to not hold any space for your pain. Only my pain is important. Hmm. Um, and as if acknowledging the pain of women 
basically not wanting to put in the work to acknowledge the pain of women, to listen to women, to empathize. I think also um, the way that men are socialized to not be emotionally present, to really actually remain emotionally immature, um, just wanting to shut down um, as a way to cope. And there's no way for you to show up well for other people if you're not even present with yourself. Man. Um, and, yeah. and so that that connects with the tension between black men and black women. Um, yeah, I think it's just a prior, prioritizing of, of your own pain and being in a patriarchal society that allows you to do that. There's there's literally no consequences when a man mistreats a woman socially. And this is something I've not only observed, but physically experienced. There are no social consequences. Y'all get dapped up. You go about your way. All your friends, men and women, yeah, you know, still kick it with you. Everything goes as business as usual. And if the woman reacts in any kind of way to any slight degree, you know, everything gets dumped on her. And I think it's just this patriarchal paradigm of scapegoating women for the misbehavior of black men. Mm. Um and of men in general, but we're specifically talking about black men. Um, in terms of how it shows up in our community, I mean, my goodness, it shows up on so, so, so many levels. Um, so many levels. And I think something that the docuseries also touches on that, that fuels the fire is that, just as I said, oppressed people taking over, you know, these systems tomorrow isn't going to miraculously erase all of our problems. Right, you know, right. The same thing is to be said within the Black community when it comes to Black men oppressing Black women. Like, Black women being in charge of every, everything, and somebody's probably going to come for my neck for this, but that's fine. Black women <laughs> miraculously being in charge of everything isn't going to erase all of our issues and all of our problems. Because, again, we're all subject to the, to the same temptations of abusing power and mistreating people. You know, it's a choice to not give in to that. And so in speaking to that, something that feeds into it is that there are Black men who have been and are being abused by Black women, mm. who have mm. been sexually abused by Black women. And that feeds, the, those experiences and that pain feeds into the narrative of mistrust. It feeds into the narrative of their pain being more important than the pain of the woman. And then also a lot of pain that um, black men experience in general, but specifically talking about sexual abuse yeah. in this sick, twisted way spun into a position of power as if like, Oh, you know, so when a woman talks about being sexually assaulted, sexually abused, there's clear language. Well, there's clear language of her being a victim and it being assault, but there are times when when men are talking about it, they're like, oh yeah, you know, I was I I had such game, you right, know, right. I was I was I was, so, I was so bad, you know, I pulled her when I was ten. I'm like, sir, you didn't. That was assault. <laughs> you, yeah, you know, but the language of our culture even kind of hides and unfolds and dismisses the pain of black men um, in a way. And when things are dismissed, it festers. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. It can't, can't be dealt with. So, yeah, I mean, Black women, Black women being ignored, um, us not being protected, being blamed for the behavior of Black men. Um, 
being blamed for, how do I say, when it comes to relationships between black men and black women and like broader social conversations, when it comes to this whole like men are trash, um, I don't know, I guess conversation, you can call it. Um, even in that conversation is pushing back against this idea that any kind of family break within the black community is the woman's fault. So if a, so if a black woman is single, she's doing something wrong. There's something wrong with her. If a black woman is in a marriage or in a relationship with a black man and things fall apart, all he has to do is whisper, she's crazy. Uh, her fault. Look at look at this crazy black woman. Look at what she did. That's all he has to say. Yeah. And she her reputation is done. Um, Whoa. You know, the the list goes on and on. There's so many examples. I'm trying to think of specific ones. But yeah, it's everywhere. I mean, well, I think that is that is powerful because I think there are so many ways that men can dismiss women when it comes to anything outside of women serving men either sexually in some form yeah. of the worship of the penis, right? Um, yeah. Or serving them food-wise, cooking dinner, getting that. You know, I talk to, a, to this day, I talk to a lot of men that, you know, complain about the younger generation of women not knowing how to cook or not yeah. knowing how to, you know, oh be good goodness. housekeepers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of ways that... <laughs> That that men can just dismiss it, but you're absolutely right. It's like, oh, she crazy, she crazy. Yeah. I had a, a friend of mine in grad school uh, who was dating a, a a woman, and 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 that was his. You know, they ended up breaking up. It was like this real ugly breakup, and that was his. That was his excuse. Was just like, yeah. man, she crazy, man. She got she got she got issues, man. She got some yeah. mad issue person. She's she gonna need a she need help. You know, and it's just, it was amazing how many people were like, oh, okay, okay, mm-hmm. oh, we got you now, we got you now. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. he was black. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And on the flip side, a woman, a woman can write out a dissertation. Mm-hmm. He can have receipts. <laughs> yeah. He can have yeah. video recordings of this man mistreating her. And there will still be people that say, well, See, she should have said it differently. If she would have just calmed down, maybe, you know, they will tone, well, maybe her tone just wasn't right. Maybe, and, and, and it's really this language of really trivializing the strength of black men. That, that's really what patriarchy does. Patriarchy paints men as these weak, feeble, you know, fragile ego having beings that women have to coddle and tiptoe around and cater to. You know, it's 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 really ironic, you know, yes. to this position of power that's given to you. But then you're trivialized as this little child that's just going to fall apart if everyone doesn't, you know, whisper to you in just the right tone. Um, a woman can have all of that and it would still be like, well, I don't know. Some people will believe her, but the majority be like, eh, I don't know. I'm on the fence. He says she crazy. So, ooh, you know, right. And at the end of the day, the dismissiveness that Black men experience outside of the Black community to their pain, to their experience, is being dumped on Black women. It's being repeated. This, it, the same dismissiveness that they experience, 
they are now projecting and are, are rather oppressing Black women with. And that comes back to my whole point of it's an intentional choice not to abuse other people. Being an oppressed person does not mean that you are automatically on the moral high ground. That's not how it works. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So this gets into a lot of the messiness that, as I'm even looking at the hashtag Surviving R. Kelly, that I think you bring up in your article uh, on Medium. And then also that comes up really, quite frankly, in the in the in the docuseries. Right. It's like, I mean, they even interview a juror that says, I just didn't believe them women. You know, I didn't like the way they looked. I didn't like the way they talked. I mean, he just being honest as all get out. Just I, yeah. I just didn't like them. And, yeah. and the believability of black women and study after study shows, right? It's that mm-hmm. young black girls are seen as women already. They are looked at yeah. as, 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 and so like, man, that, that for me is like powerful. My daughter, 12 years old, when I think about that, like 12 years old right Ooh. now. Ooh. And at that touches me in a place that I, I mean, it's, it, it's powerful stuff. So, I mean, I don't, can you talk about that? I mean, even in your own experience, I mean, just being believed as a black woman, and maybe it's gener—I mean, it's different generationally. I—I I, I don't know. I mean, I maybe I'm presuming that it's different. I mean, what what is what has been your experience, maybe on, on something like that? My my experience has definitely been. My experience has definitely been that there has there is an expectation for me to enable the foolishness of black men at all costs. And if I choose not to, whenever I have chosen to speak up about how I've been abused, um, physically, emotionally, verbally, there's always backlash. I always get scapegoated that Mm. I am the problem. Um, I'm being a troublemaker. Um, And some people, there, the, I have to emphasize that this is the minority who do respond with compassion and they believe and they care. Um, some of them, a, a smaller portion of that minority would still even say, I believe you and I know it's terrible, but why did you have to say anything? Yes, yes. I wish you just didn't have to say anything. It's almost as if there's this narrative of, there is this narrative of what the ideal victim is. And the mm. ideal victim is someone who just quietly slips off into the night with their pain mm. and miraculously overcomes it without anybody even knowing Whoa. that they were abused. Oh my and goodness. They just rise to the top somehow one day and nobody needs to know. It's just, you just go off into the distance with your abuse and with your pain and with yes. your trauma. Yes. And with flashbacks and just become a better person somehow by the grace of God and just live your life, but just don't say anything. Don't disrupt that man's life. Don't disrupt our Mm. life Mm. because we are connected to that man and we have emotional bonds to that man and we have investment in that man not being disturbed because we want his, we don't want his equilibrium to be off. We want him to be, you know, at rest in this world and not have any more troubles than he already has because the world is already trying to take the black man down. Yes. So just be quiet, you know, um, that, that has been my experience and, Mm. and even people trying to, because they were so invested in 
their positive experiences of the black men who have abused me um, because they were so invested in their friendship with them. They sought out basically tried to conjure up excuses to dismiss me, tried to change the narrative of who I was, tried to come at my character, um, tried to find any little excuse, any flaw they could find. Mm. It's, a, it's the same thing that white people do when black people get shot. Right, so right. A, a, a black person gets killed because it hasn't just been black men. It's been mostly black men, but we don't want to remember, forget the women as well. Absolutely. Well, black people getting shot, and then the first thing that white people jump to, you know, white people who are not allies, which is the majority, um, is, well, 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 what was that black person doing there? Right. You know, right. wh- why were they even there? Or, wh- you know, they intimidated the police or they just didn't cooperate or they're a thug or, you know, just trying because they don't want to be present with their privilege and because they don't want to be present with yeah. the fact that their people group is decimating another group, they try to find excuses to right. help themselves sleep better at night. And I've experienced the same thing from Black men. Ooh. The exact behavior. Ooh. Wow. What do you want to say to R. Kelly if he's watching? R. Kelly, you have three children, two of them being girls. Do you even love your children enough to even to think that it's okay to treat me and all the other victims that you've treated? How would you feel if someone would, would have treated any one of your three kids, even all three? You would be upset. I'm sure you would probably want justice served. So why won't you just look at, if these are your kids, let them go. Let everybody live normal lives. I don't have anything to say to him. I don't even know if I want an apology. I wouldn't even feel it was real. I just think he's numb to people's feelings and um, he knows about my story. He's been dismissive about it. He still didn't address what he did to me. So I just hope he gets help. Um, He admits to his wrongdoings and um, He's held accountable. I pray that you see this, you feel this, and you get the help needed because this can't keep going on. You can't keep doing this, dude. What would you say to him? I just like you to know that you really hurt me. I was a little girl in like a bad man's world. I never really recovered from it. I'm really angry with you for what you're doing. I don't understand it. Why you would want to hurt so many women. I just really hope that you let the women go home and get the support and help that they need. I'm not afraid of you anymore. I'm not afraid of your lawyers. Not afraid of your goons. I'm not afraid of your team that you have help you. I would give my life for my justice and any other woman you validated. 
I will not go away. I will not be quiet. I will not hide. You know what you did. You know the turmoil you brought into my kid's life. And not just my kids, my family. Because what affected me affected my children. What affected my children affected their grandparents and their aunts and their uncles and their cousins. You destroyed Christmases, birthdays, graduations, and my kids' ability to just go to lunch and sit with their friends and laugh and play. And for that, I will never forgive you. For that, you can deny all you want to. For that, you can deflect all you want to. And for that, you can go to hell. I mean, and this, as you're talking, I think about when you talked about, I'll go back to what you said. You talked about, you know, how you're supposed to, you know, go out into the wilderness somewhere mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. quietly do this thing. I mean, I think so much about how that's seeped into the church. It's seeped into yeah. um, uh, 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 motivational speakers, sermons, yes. pastors who go into your prayer closet, you know, and, and that's between you and God. And so then yeah. it, it becomes this almost a double slap like man it's this is really on you i mean you look yeah. look them fast girls you know was you wearing them bras and and you know like you was you the one you know temptation this gets into purity culture the intersectionality yeah. of that and then yeah. you, like you said then then it's the rationalization by by us as men and i yeah. own that as well but it's like well come on i mean you know i mean she was but you know who at fill in the blank whoever her name is like you know her you know she's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes this thing, like like you said, why even bring it up? Um, mm -hmm. Why are we even talking about this stuff? Yeah. And why you why why I mean black men got enough to worry about? Like why yeah. you, you know they, they now now they want to come out and especially with R. Kelly, right? It's like oh they all want money. These money grabbing bees, you know these 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 ages out there just wanting that's all they want. And so, mm -hmm. I, and I guess I'm trying to think. Is there a solution? Is there is there, is there education? I mean, because I, I think how deep this thing goes, because at least as black folk, we can come together, right, in solidarity of okay, incarceration, mass incarceration, racism, white supremacy. Okay, we that. But the minute you bring this type of stuff up, literally the second, it's mm, yeah, mm, I don't know about that, man. You know, I'm, I don't know all that stuff. You know, people don't. I mean, cats don't even want to have a conversation about yeah. you know about about this stuff. They're like, mm -mm, man, yeah. then, 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 I had, a, in fact, I had a dude, an old dude. I wasn't present. This always happens when I'm not around. But yeah. uh, my wife and daughter went to go buy. A, um, they wanted to get an ugly, you know, Christmas sweater for a party they were going to. So they mm -hmm. went to uh, our the the best place. In fact, y'all ever in Chicago? I know the spot to go. There's one over here on the west side of Chicago, the best Salvation Army. Anyways, and they they went in, and this old dude was just like, he was saying something to them, and then he was like, oh, but I can't say nothing to women now because, you know, y'all be tripping. Y'all be talking back. And I think about, whoa, mm -hmm. the loadedness of that statement. Yeah. Absolutely. That I, actually brings me, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. 
No, you were just touching on something that I was thinking about where I was thinking about an additional layer in terms of my experience, which is I know is a very common experience, is this additional layer of if you are not, if you do not have a docile temperament, mm. if you're not a soft-spoken, gentle type of woman, then you're even, you're targeted even more because the intersection of sexism and racism says doubly, not only do you not have the right to feel justified in your humanity and your human right to be vocal and your human right to pain and to justice and to reconciliation um, efforts and all these different things. But because you're a woman, you're doubly not, not owed the, you do not have the right to do any of this. And so how dare you be a black woman who believes that you are human and who believes that you are deserving of what everyone else is deserved of. And that is a voice. How dare you? Right. You know, y'all, y'all talk back. What is talking back? You know what I mean? You, you sound like the white man. You sound like the white man talking about black people. That's how you sound. And black men need to acknowledge, you need to acknowledge your male fragility. That whole statement (laughs) of y'all talk back, that is male fragility. That is you complaining about your discomfort around a Black woman expressing herself and communicating. And guess what? When a Black man has conflict with another Black man, I have never in my life heard a Black man say, well, I can't even say nothing to him because he be talking back. Even if that Black (laughs) man is belligerent, even if that Black man is hot-headed, even if that Black man is completely horrible when it comes to communication. I mean, this black man can have no communication skills whatsoever, but another black man will never say, man, I, I can't even talk to him because he talks back. They might say, oh yeah, you know, we just fell out or I'm just not friends with him anymore. Or, you know what, he's ridiculous. I need to go confront him again. You know, the, the responses to, to, to you, he is still human. To you, he still has the right Ooh. to speak and communicate, even if you don't like how he's communicating. But if a Black woman communicates in a way that you just don't like, it's not even necessarily abusive. It's not inappropriate. It's not wrong. You just don't like it. Suddenly, she has no right to a voice. And why is she even speaking to you? Mm. Mm. I've, I've literally had a man who was definitely emotionally abusive Mm -hmm. and I had a conversation with him was calm. I now granted I I was planning on, I can't just go straight into hollering at people. It's not how I'm built. Um, I have to ease my way in there. (laughs) You know, when I'm really angry, I get quiet. So my voice was calm. I was quiet. Um, I had not raised my voice yet. Um, Because I don't think there's anything wrong with that to get your point across at times. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't even gotten there. I'd barely gotten two and a half sentences out. And because he was just, just the fragility, just uncomfortable. He decided the conversation was over and walked out and left. (laughs) Left. Oh, my gosh. Oh man! So you decide, oh, you just don't like the, the way it's being said, or what's being said, or you don't like being held accountable. And all of a sudden, nope, you have no right to a voice. I'm just gonna leave. 
That is the behavior. That is the behavior that black women deal with on a regular basis. And so here's the heartbreak in that. The heartbreak in that is that while black men um, and some black women support this, but while black men say, oh, you know, I'm going through enough. I ain't trying to deal with this. I ain't trying to talk about this. Why are we even got to talk about this? Black women are going through it from mm. non-black people and from black men. And we still, as a collective, the majority of us choose to show up to fight for the rights of black men, to comfort, to emotionally support, to do activism. I mean, Black Lives Matter is led by black women. Yes, yes. Period. So even while we're going through an added layer of oppression than black men are, we still show up for black men. But black men as a majority have decided that, well, we're going through enough that we don't need to show up for you. Mm. Mm. Man, this is, I'm telling you, this stuff has so many layers. Um, So this article you wrote, title of it has so much, Surviving R. Kelly's Defenders, Reckoning with the Minions of Misogynoir. Talk about that title and what, uh, first of all, this is a great article. I mean, and again, those of you listening, I will post this in the show, this link in in the show notes because y'all need to read this. Um, what was what was going on for you as, as, as you put this together? Oh, great question. I was so infuriated and so burdened by the conversations that I was seeing following, well, during and following um, the docuseries airing, where there were so many people, there are still so many people defending R. Kelly, um, defending other Black men who behave like him making excuses. And these are not only black men, but also black women. Um, And that's just the way that oppression works. There always has to be a percentage of the oppressed that supports the oppressive system for it to even work. So that's just, again, that's not unique to the black community. That's just how this works. And so, but living in that, it's, I I was just furious and not only not furious just for the sake of being angry, but angry because I'm so grieved at how toxic and how damaging and how dysfunctional this rhetoric of victim blaming is um, and specifically in the black community. And I saw so many other friends of mine who were also battling with this, like getting into all kinds of arguments with people on social media and in person and in text message and just Mm. everywhere because they were also just so enraged and so infuriated and upset that anyone would have the gall, the audacity to defend a man that we literally have 30 years of receipts proving his behavior. Three decades of videos, of messages, of witnesses. I mean, the list goes on. And you're still defending this man. And so I, I, I personally needed to reckon with that. I needed to reckon with the minions of misogynoir. I needed to reckon with all of these people who are not only harming victims, are not only harming survivors, but are perpetuating the culture and the system that creates monsters like R. Kelly, that creates the environment for people like R. Kelly 
I should say, for people like R. Kelly to take advantage of to become the monster that he's become, because I don't want to take away his agency. He chose. Um, and at the end of the day, really needing to acknowledge that this is going to be a problem. This isn't, I, I don't have utopian beliefs um, this side of heaven. I, I don't. That's not my framework. Um, I believe in doing the work because of integrity, because of love, um, because of persistence and determination, because I believe that any person that is touched with some bit of relief and comfort is worth it. But I don't do the work because I think utopia is gonna happen on this side of heaven. And so I wanted to write a piece um, to speak to this experience, to speak to that struggle of, hey, predators aren't going anywhere. People right. that defend them, people that defend them aren't going anywhere. So in light of that, what on earth do we do? Um, and, and that's what I wanted to outline um, here. Yeah. No, that is. And, and it's powerful because you you post uh, and I love it. I always love articles that post screenshots of, of tweets because it's like yeah. you can it's like. Twitter moves so fast. Just social media in general moves so fast. It's often time. It's easy to to overlook things. I mean, one of them you have from at least the handle is Nikki Yo. Um, I'm so tired of and in parentheses some slash many uh, black men elevating their own victimhood at the expense of black women. We've just been talking about that. Sickening. Yeah. If you're feeling like this doc is unfair or an attack on the black man. You need to reevaluate reevaluate your values. I think the one that really stuck with me was Brittany Daniels or Brittany D. Wrights. She says, some black oh, folks yeah. be quick to say it's two sides to every story. This is this is big, because I, I saw this a lot on the internet, right? When, it, when it's about abuse and rape. Let that be about police uh, violence or racism. And all of a sudden, there's only one truth, right? And Yes. Whoo! Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is... Yeah, that that is that is deep, right? Because it's like there's there's as soon as we talk, like I said, we're talking about police brutality. We you know we don't we don't you know we're not there's not many. I mean, there are black folks who who say it, but there the majority of black folks aren't saying, "Oh, there's two sides to every story for Trayvon, Mike Brown." Yeah. Oh, there's two sides to every story. Like, oh, why are you why are you taking that white man's you know uh, name through the mud? Like, come on, now. and it's like no, no, no. Get, break down for a minute, and I know our time is nigh. Uh, uh, but break down for a minute, misogynoir. What do, what do you mean by that, and how does that? In case somebody's out there, like, uh, what did she just say? What they talking about? Right. Break that down for a little bit. Yeah. So misogynoir is a term to, um, in one word, just in one word, describe the intersection of misogyny with racism. Um, and misogyny being directed specifically to towards black women. Um, the oppression of the devaluing of the dehumanizing of um, women um, and actually dislike, dislike for women. Um, mm. Side note, it is very possible to be sexually attracted to women and actually dislike women. You just Woo. because you like having sex with women doesn't mean you're not a misogynist. Ooh, come on. Come That's on. Not a thing. You need to say that a little louder for uh, the preachers in the back. Seriously, that's not a thing. You know, you think that, oh, well, I have an auntie and a mama. You know, well, you have a mother by default because this is how we create life. That's one. 
um, having a mother means nothing about the, the feelings and the sentiment and the internal ideologies and the level of worth that you attach to womanhood means nothing. Mm. Um, and so misogynoir is a term um, that is just all encompassing of that, this very painful intersection. Mm-hmm. 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 I, I love it. I love it. I love it. And I love that you are engaging with that because I think also oftentimes that there is an overlooking of, particularly when he's talking about, you know, throw words out like feminism or people throw out words like, you know, racism, you know, it becomes very uh, binary and people, you know, forget like, oh, you know, it's like when people get up at the, at the Oscars or something like that. And they're like, oh, women need to stand up. It's like, but really, are you talking about all women or which women are you talking about? Yeah. At the, you know, at the recording of this, you know, we, uh, you know, they, they we, the media, you know, is announcing that they found this little white girl in Wisconsin. You know, her, both her parents were murdered, and you know, it's like this all-out, you know, uh, uh, um, search party went out, and they're looking for her and everything. And it's just like, I mean, my first thought was like, wow, like y'all spend that much time looking for black women, y'all. You know, did we yeah. ever find them, them, them sisters that was missing? Did anybody, everybody, go out and do we make it? No, no, of no. course not. And so no. these, all these intersections come into play that are just that egregious and heinous. I'm sorry, I'm doing too much talking, but this is the, it just, no. this just got me going and thinking so much. Yeah. What, um, how are you moving forward in all this? What are you, what are you doing next? What are the, what are some of the things, what are some of the spaces that you are uh, bringing light to um, about this and, and, and whatnot? Um, well, writing is definitely my main, um, my main outlet right now. Um, so I'm just, I'm going to keep writing, going to keep writing, keep having conversations with people um, about how to keep moving forward. It's because it's really a matter of resilience. It's really about how can we stay resilient while these issues continue? Um, and how can we do as much as possible while all these issues still continue? Um, so that's, that's what I'm sticking with. And, and as you said, like the, the docuseries bringing to light this intersection is so huge because um, it's, it's, it's very hard to be present with um, as, as a black woman. It's hard to be present with um, because really just as a pain management tool, I, I compartmentalize the two often. Um, I compartmentalize sexism and racism very, very often when it comes to the work that I'm doing with writing, with speaking, um, protesting the ways that I'm showing up in the world. Um, just because it's that overwhelming. Like I, this, this docuseries forced me to revisit um, an internal space of integrating those two. Um, that is very painful for me because when when black men are shot in the streets, mm-hmm. women, and of course black men grieve as well. But I'm just speaking to the to the black woman experience. Like we we intensely grieve your lives. We intensely grieve your lives, and 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 then to also deal with the heartbreak of how so many of you are treating us in your life. I, I don't want both the deaths and the lives of black men to be heartbreaking to me. Mm. I don't want that, but this is, this is the reality of being a black woman in America. Um, and this docuseries brings that to light. So I think, 
I thank the storytellers, I thank the filmmakers, um, and it's encouraging me as a storyteller to continue um, telling telling these important stories. Mm. That and and absolutely they are. I mean, I think somebody, a couple people, uh, I think said it in the uh, documentary, and then a whole bunch of it online. They were like, you know, the difference between R. Kelly and Bill Cosby is that Bill Cosby assaulted white women. But R. Kelly has been doing this to black women. It's like, yes. you know, and so it's like the little value that yes. has been had. Um, my yeah. gosh, um, so much. And we haven't even really even scratched the surface on this. We didn't even get to the enablers. Like I think about his bodyguards. No. and Oh, my goodness. The enablers. I love talking about them. <laughs> man, the publicists, then the folks who knew carloads. Of women. I mean, that's what this was said several times in the docuseries, right? Carloads of women carloads. Are, are, are showing up to his house. Carloads. Who's driving? Who's paying for the gas? Carloads car of women coming into his house. Women being flown to him for debt correction. Girls. Mm -hmm. Teenage girls being flown to him for decades. Um one of his partners who was actually age appropriate when he uh introduced you know his lifestyle to her literally said i have girls here that have been with me from five to 15 years damn like and all of this all of this is possible because of misogynoir people there there's an employee who's giving a testimony and started a former employee and started breaking down crying and this person we don't know man or woman we don't know who they are but this person was like i'm just it's just really hitting me because when i was working there he was like i initially blamed i blamed the girls i said you know plainly he said or this person said you know these bitches are crazy right you know right. doing all this nah, 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 you know and and then this person broke down crying because they're like but then I started paying attention to what he was saying to get them to do that. And, and, and that's the thing, all these employees, all these friends, other celebrities who didn't want to, don't want to touch this docuseries with a 10 foot pole and wouldn't interview for it. Yeah. Um, managers, security, all of, everybody needs to be locked up. Everybody, everybody needs to be locked up. All the employees, every manager, Shoot, people that came in to clean the house and saw the girls there. Right. Everybody, everyone. Police, pol the police departments, well, we have issues with the police anyway, but the police departments that were get, have been giving R. Kelly heads up when yeah. um, other police officers, I mean, it's just this, this degree of abuse is what makes it a sex cult mm. because an entire system has been created to keep these women imprisoned and to protect R. Kelly from any legal ramifications. It's, Ooh. yeah, it's insane. And that, I mean, and that's what, that and, that, and that was a large part that it, you know, looking and hearing that and you're listening to his brother, who's ironic, his older brother, right? Who's ironically yeah. in jail talking about, you know, yeah. we all have preferences, you know, and that's just his preference. Oh. I'm like, like, oh, what? Preference? I watched it. I lost it when he said that. I think I think I was uh, on a Twitter tirade <laughs> when he when he came on talking about well I I like older women right yeah he likes younger women 
what's wrong with my brother's preference? And I said, preference. I can't. I can't with you. Stay in prison wherever you are. Stay there. Do not come out. Oh, my gosh. I, I cannot deal with you. Like, you, like, oh, preference. But, the, but that is the lengths that people, it sounds crazy, but that is the lengths that people will go to to justify and rationalize the abuse of Black women. And what I really need people to understand, because I'm sure there's going to be people who have defended R. Kelly who are going to listen to this. And you, you're, you, you do what you want to do. But let me make it very clear what you are doing. By defending R. Kelly and people, men like him, you are creating unsafe environments for, if you are a Black woman, for yourself, girls around you, for your children, for your nieces, your cousins, your friends, anyone that you care even slightly about. The rhetoric that you're spewing, you are creating environments for R. Kelly's. So don't be surprised and don't be shocked when somewhere down the line you realize that, have mercy God, people that you care about in your environment have been abused because you're, you're perpetuating the environment necessary for predators to thrive. So go ahead and defend him if you want to, but those are the, the ramifications of that. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> that <laughs> is deep. My gosh, Esperanza, thank you so much for coming back and talking about this. And thank you for your article and the work uh, that you're doing. Thank you so much for the invite. It's, it's always great to talk with you. The perfect example is that even, even men who are allegedly in the work of justice for women right. are, are still susceptible to treating women like shit. Yes. Like I, yes. I have, I have been, I have experienced personally experienced emotional and verbal abuse from men who champion women's rights publicly. Our activists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, man. To raise a prime example of that which is so it's it it's still devastating every time, yo. Like that, it's just like man, another one. <laughs> right. Right. You know. You know. And there was actually people trying to defend him. Like, oh, well, he apologized. Like, what else would you want him to do? <laughs> like, I yo, think. come on. I mean. The bar is on the floor. It's on the floor. This is why I go back to, like, Achan in the Old Testament. I'm like, Achan didn't care about what he was doing. In fact, he wasn't even going. I mean, you know, and Elijah gave him. Not Elijah. Um, uh, uh, what was uh, this? Yeah, they, they, you know, they gave that Negro all kind of room to like, hey, you know, like you're going to confess, you're going to confess. Nah, nah. Then he was just like, then he was like, look, I got receipts. The Holy Spirit showed up and told me yeah. this. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, I got Holy Spirit receipts. Bro. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't sorry before, but now that you caught now, all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Oh, Lord. Mm. Yeah, see. I'm getting my Hammond B3 out right now, man. Like, I know, that's right. Hey, 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 come on now. Yo, oh, man. So, anyways, yeah, I saw that, and mm. I was just, I was just, honestly, as, as a man, it just continues to make me more disgusted. I mean, because I'm just like, man, and it challenges me to continue to purge my own sexist stuff in the, that, that's, you know, that's embedded in there. I mean, even though yeah. I was raised by two women. It's everywhere. It's, it's right. everywhere. There's no way for anyone 
male or female to grow up in this society and not have internalized sexism. That is impossible. Right. Whoo. Absolutely. And then the other part in terms of like other examples of people who a mess and are in the documentary, folks were going in on the, um, the filmmaker about having Charlemagne and having Joe Budden in the, um, in the docuseries mm. because, both, because we have receipts on both of them being abusive, being abusive. And there's um, receipts for Charlemagne having done sexual assault, committed sexual assault, all kinds of things on both of them. And they're, and they're in the docuseries talking about, yeah, lock R. Kelly's ass up. Like, oh, right. no, wait a minute. Right, right. See. So now we got Charlemagne, Joe Budden, and Toure. You know, oh Lord, is there is there is there one? Oh God, is there two? Are there five? Right. <laughs> Where right. are they? Right. Wow. So, yeah, and, I, and I can imagine how that must feel for you as a man. Where it's just like, oh shoot, like what you know, what is going on out here? That's a lot. No, it is. No, it absolutely is. I mean, that video surfaced of um, you mentioned it earlier, and when we were talking of. Um, you know, men who, you know, want to brag about, you know, being, uh, you know, I was 10 and I got a, I got a woman and everything. It's just like, and so Lil Wayne, you know, was talking about, oh, nigga, I wasn't assaulted. I welcomed it. I didn't report it. But it was interesting because, you know, people pointed it out afterwards and I had to go back and watch it again. It's like his face changes as he's talking about it and he's laughing about it. But somebody was like, look, that nigga still hurt. He's still he's yeah. he's got some incentive. He's trying to make a joke about it and trying to play it yeah. off, you know, around yeah. his other male friends. But it's like, no, it's like, dude, you were assaulted 11 or 12. Like, no, that was yeah. assault. That was yeah. assault straight up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Ooh. And then that just perpetuates the problem because he's not even he he has not even been given the freedom to acknowledge and grieve his own pain. Like he's not even internally free, right? Right. Let alone being able to be present with somebody else's. Like that's that's it's it's heartbreaking. It really is. It really is heartbreaking. And that's why I even wanted to bring that up in terms of like men who have been sexually abused, because I have I have no interest in in doing. I fight. I consciously fight the temptation to do to men and to do to white people what is done to me as a black woman. And that is dismissed, dehumanized, silence, all these different things. Like pain that black men experience needs to be discussed. And so the, as we're talking about sexual abuse and sexual assault, only upholding the narratives of women, that's, that's, that's not helping anybody. Like we, we do need to talk about all of it because yeah. it, it's all intertwined. It goes back and forth, you know, and it's horrific. It's, it's heartbreaking to hear that that has happened to anyone. This is a mess, man. Oof, yes. Mess. Well, thank you. Again. It was good to talk about it, though, because yeah. it was, you know, sometimes it's just a lot to hold in after you see something like that. You're just, I just need to talk about this. This is right. too much. Excellent, excellent. Well, hey, enjoy the, the the sunny weather. Yes, <laughs> I will. <laughs> you, you, you hang in there out there in the cold. I hear that. That that I will. Me and my shovel. <laughs> The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-7233. If you go to White Hodge Podcasts, 
facebook.com and look up profane faith there's going to be a host of material there and for resources and to seek help sexual abuse is real y'all it's real it's everywhere around us peace y'all